where liberty is our mission. Today is, well, today's Sunday, but this will be broadcast on Monday, March 24th, 2014, and this is podcast number 368. My name is Ben Stone, and with no further ado, with me today, again, is my friend Bill Bupert. Uh, Bill Bupert's website is zerogov.com, and I strongly want to urge you to, if you haven't visited it, get over there to zero uh, zerogov.com, to z-e-r-o-g-o-v.com. C-O-M. And if you haven't read it yet, Bill had an article up uh, last Monday, one week ago, and uh, it's it's really worth reading. It's about a gentleman who uh, sort of came in at a good time and finished a good fight and uh, brought at least a, a level of liberty to Ireland that they had not uh, been able to, to accomplish for a long time. Bill, welcome back to the show again. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on, and that would be Michael Collins. And the the unfortunate part of that is it did bifurcate into a civil war once air got its its um, freedom from the United Kingdom after eight after an eight hundred year occupation. But nonetheless, they were socialist schism against socialist schism, and Ireland has been a socialist basket case ever since then, except for a a brief enlightenment for ten years during the nineties. But the usual endarkenment, the collectivist endarkenment began, and uh, we can see the results of that today. You know, I, I've preached this so often that I almost get tired using the words. But there are so many people, especially I think on the extreme right of the political spectrum in the U.S., that have this fantasy in their mind of a revolution and that would fix things. And And there's even talk of it in different ways and everything. But what I've said over and over and over is... First off, revolution always just produces a replacement government that is pretty much same as, you know, out goes the old boss, in comes the new, and nothing really changes. And the other thing is, if your philosophy, if you're not based on a solid foundation, if your philosophy is flawed to begin with, then just changing bosses doesn't do you any good. It just brings in a bloody mess of death and horror uh, for a generation to have to tolerate and then it goes right back to captivity again. And yet that, that, and this has been repeated in history so many times. And yet we don't seem to learn the lesson from it. That, that is the cycle, it appears. And there are redoubts throughout the world that have always been there that are called state repellent and undergoverned regions by the usual suspects. Like the two and a half square, two and a half million square kilometer massif in Southeast Asia that covers like four states that are in the mountains mm-hmm. that they call Zomia that is is virtually unregulated and what they would call undergoverned. I think you have the same thing in Appalachia. You Prior to 1860, you had the same thing west of the 100th Meridian in North America. So the, there have been regions that have 
assume their own suzerainty of sorts, but they haven't imposed upon themselves the kind of statist madness that, that you're talking about. But does that statist madness happen after almost every revolution? Absolutely it does. You look at India after Gandhi. I, I have the, the highest respect for some of the tactics and, and operational strategy that Gandhi used to liberate the country. But what he did is he liberated the country in much the same way as we see in the movie The Patriot, where they say, well, do you want a 100 legislators tyrannizing you abroad, or do you want 10,000 legislators tyrannizing you at home? Yeah, exactly. Um, before we get too far uh, in that direction, because we can actually do a whole podcast talking about that. <laughs> but uh, before we get in that direction, um, let's talk a little bit about your experiences with the TSA and our mutual friend, Davi Barker, up there in uh, New Hampshire, and all the fun you guys had with uh, with your encounter with them. I'm going to make an assumption for the for the sake of brevity that that most people have background information on what happened between uh, Davi and myself and thugs standing around at the Manchester airport. We were at Liberty Forum. He and I were both speakers and presenters there, and we were coming home. We had the same flight to Chicago. He was heading to San Francisco. I was heading here to Arizona. And I just so happened to be waiting in the lobby when I didn't know Davi was going to be in the same airplane that I was. I always travel with a gun, so I have to check the gun. And I have to wait 10 minutes at the check-in desk to make sure that the TSA hasn't filled their pants because they see something irregular in my gun case. <laughs> so I was waiting there, and I met Davi and said, Davi, where are you headed? It appears we're on the same flight. So we went through TSA together. He and I stood at the uh, – we always opt out, both he and I. So we did not go through the porno scanner. We opted for the grope, and I have something that, that you're – for the sake of not using coarse language on your show, there's a request that I always make of the agent <laughs> when, they, uh, when they grope me. And you can read about that if you, uh, if you read the article on Daily Anarchist that Davi published. And so we went through that, and then I was done, and I waited for Davi because I wanted to make sure that he made it through. Well, Davi is, of course, the Muslim agorist, and because he's a Muslim, despite what the TSA says – they target ethnic groups and they target skin color. Mm -hmm. He doesn't happen to be a black man, but he happens to be a member of a creed that the U.S. government has declared war on, 1.6 billion adherents globally, a really smart strategic move. Nonetheless, TSA says, uh, so it appears that you have Bitcoin. And I'm sitting there and, and I, I say, you know, Bitcoin only has a virtual presence. It doesn't have a presence in the real world. So you can't be seeing Bitcoin unless you're hallucinating. <laughs> so the, uh, they, they seemed rather confused. And these weren't the usual TSA blue shirts. These were more, and again, they were portly, of course. These were two overweight fellows in ties and bad shirts. And the, I, I'll bet they were BDOs, but behavior detection officers. Mm -hmm. It's this really bogus voodoo witch doctor program. It's almost paranormal that they, that they put together in the TSA where they look at microfacial tics and movements and things like that to determine the veracity of the passenger and whether they're hiding something or not. So they go through this with Davi. And the bottom line is they hassled Davi for something that didn't exist because what they actually were – was a collection in cylinders of lapel pins made out of pot metal mm -hmm. that he had in there. And that's what they were harassing him about. But my suspicion is not only were they BDOs, but it, it was yet another manifestation of these fusion intelligence centers putting out really bad information and coming to bad conclusions and using, you know, faulty logic to come up with these kind of, I guess, behavioral cues or uh, physical tells that they, that they transmit out 
to all the drones in the TSA and say, look out for this. And that's what happened. Eventually, we made it out into the, the departure area, got onto our respective planes with no incident and, and flew away. But it, it, it was yet another encounter with the TSA. I've had dozens of them. I've, we could do a whole show on that, but I, I always harass them when I, when I uh, fly. Um, I, you, I have to hand it to you. I, I say this pretty regularly to uh, to people on this topic, but I have to hand it to you, uh, you and Davi and a lot of people like that um, that can that can weigh in the balances. You know the difference between going through that and tolerating all of that, and the money that you save, uh, the time saved, and everything in travel by going that direction. The amount of self control is to me just. Amazing level of self control. I I envy that level of self control because unfortunately, uh, one of my great flaws is a lack of self control and the maddening desire to just slice one of those people's throat when they touch me. <laughs> and and that's all hypothetical speculation. Y- yeah, exactly. Yes, well, as long the, as I stay away from the, the airport, it's it's hypothetical. That's right. Well, and and I have the uh, I have the the philosophical curative for that, which is stoicism. Ah, hey, that's a great segue. I wanted to ask you about that anyway. Um, this is let's let's give a real quick outline um, because I don't know a lot about Stoicism, but what I have read is really intriguing. And this, if, as I understand it, has a lot to do with uh, self control and maintaining control over your emotions. Am I am I in the right direction? It, you, you're you're precisely in the right direction. Stoicism, capital S, Stoicism. Because of course, in the, in the American lexicon, stoicism can can mean that you are uh, you are stone faced and in in the face of peril or whatever the case may be, you're calm and cool. What the Italians would call sprezzatura, which is grace under pressure. In this case, capitalist stoicism is actually probably one of the most practical philosophies ever designed by man or discovered by man. Full disclosure, I was a philosophy um, major when I started out, but ended up being a political economy major when I ended. I wish I had stuck with philosophy. But philosophy is uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations. He was poorly portrayed in the movie Gladiator as the uh, Roman emperor. Uh, Seneca, Epictetus, and a whole host of, of other Stoic philosophers and authors, primarily from a 500-year period in Greco-Roman times. But I think that as Maximus would tell us from Gladiator, it echoes an eternity, what they had to offer us. There are a lot of aspects to it. It doesn't mean that one is bereft of love or emotion. It simply means that one has control of that. And one of the central tenets of Stoicism, we could do a whole show on this, but I just want to do it briefly because you and I have other topics we'd like to cover, is span of control. I have found that with my children and and with myself and such, I can take a whole lot of pressure off of myself that is totally unnecessary by keeping in mind what my span of control is. At one point, Seneca went so far as to say we are but a a vessel of clay and a few quarts of blood, and that in the end, what I do in this life is a reflection of my character that I look in the mirror at every day. And if I do the right thing, no matter the pain that it causes me, then I will end up being a good man and a righteous man. Span of control means this. Why worry yourself over things that you have no control over because we have finite time and resources to devote to our family, our friends, conversations that I have with Ben Stone, uh, things that I write about, things like that. And I have certain intellectual areas that I, that I really am uh, interested in, 
But my span of control as such is what can I do with my mind to influence people, to touch people, things like that. For instance, am I really concerned about global warming? I'm not. Am I concerned about climate change? I'm not. Part of that is stoicism. Part of it is scientific empiricism. The stoic part of me says the reason I'm not so concerned about climate change is that there's very little I can do about it. People will look at you and I, Ben, and they'll say, well, there's very little you guys can do about it because you yammer or flap your gums about liberty, but you don't do much <laughs> about it. But what we are doing is now point your index finger at your head. The revolution begins here. Right. That's what you and I are doing. That's right. what we are proctoring. That's what we are facilitating is we're asking people to ask the questions. For instance, one thing that Stoicism taught me is that it's one thing to say question authority. Wow, that sounds great. It sounds very hip. As a matter of fact, hippie from the 60s. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, question authority is almost outside our span of control. We can do that, but we can't affect people. What we can do with our span of control is question obedience and get people to say enough is enough. Refusal is entirely one of your best weapons in your personal arsenal. Man, true, truer words could not be spoken. This is this is the boots on the ground uh, of where this battle has to be won is in the mind and convincing people that obedience is not necessary. When we do that, we win. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like, you know, uh, as, as solid as any fact can be, when people's minds shift away from obedience, we win. Liberty prevails and freedom blossoms. Thank you, Ben. And I think maybe that's the, uh, that should be the focus and locus of most of our efforts. You know, we're always trying to – I go to a site called lifehacker.com, which seeks to optimize our effectiveness. And I say effectiveness because you can optimize efficiency, but that doesn't necessarily make you more effective. But if you optimize effectiveness, that usually optimizes efficiency. Um, taking – we're kind of blending the two topics a little bit here. Uh, I, I made the statement when I was interviewing Davi uh, in reference to what happened up there in New Hampshire. I made the statement to him, I think, in a very clumsy way, and I've said it to several people, and I've never really been able to express it as clearly as my feelings, as clearly as the, as the thoughts are in my head. But, um, but maybe I can bring it into this conversation. Uh, what I've said was that, um, you know, the TSA was probably told, those agents were probably told, somebody might be trying to smuggle through vast amounts of this magic internet money, <laughs> and we have to stop it because they could, you know, they could be moving over 10, whatever it is, $10,000 worth overseas or whatever. And, and that, something along that was probably, along that line of thinking was probably in their minds, along with, you know, how much fun is it to hassle a Muslim anyway? You know, that's, that, right. that's part of their whole thing. But but somewhere in there, the the obedient TSA agents thought in their mind that in addition to having the fun of dominating people, which is the major reason why they take the job, in addition to that, they can always justify what they're doing by saying, uh, you know, we're we're stopping a threat. They have this security theater theater that they are actors in, and they are completely engulfed in their part in this security theater. And they, to the point where they believe that they're actually doing something to make people safer. But I've made this argument that what they don't know, what, what they never will realize, because they're just not bright enough, but what they will never realize, those individual TSA agents, I mean, are not, will never realize this, is that 
Davi Barker was carrying with him something far more dangerous than $10,000 worth of some monetary exchange. Um, Davi was carrying with him in his mind a philosophy that is far more dangerous to the, to the lifestyle of these people than they have the ability to imagine. If they really understood the threat that Davi Barker possesses, uh, that he, that he presents to them, then they would forget about Bitcoin and they would disappear him off the face of the planet as quickly as possible. Because, and it's the same for Bill Bupert, it's the same for Michael Dean, it's the same for any number of these different personalities that are, uh, that are expressing this message. The message, yeah, the message is, uh, carries with it the antidote to the poison that, that so much of the world has swallowed. Especially in the case of Davi, because Davi happens to be a member and an adherent of a religion that apparently the U.S. government is waging war on, the 1.6 billion adherents that I mentioned earlier. And if he were to weaponize this in the opposite direction towards peace, where he says, I am a libertarian, agorist, Muslim, he takes the teeth out of their entire modus operandi of saying – this religion is not a religion of peace. It's a religion of war. And of course, any religion can be made a religion of war. I mean, you look at Christianity and there's, there's ample, uh, there's ample reasons where, where one can look at historical circumstances where that takes place, for instance, with the Crusades. Right. But I think the other important thing to consider here is that when we were standing there and doing this, if more people did say, you know what? I'm opting out of the porno scanner and I'm going to make you do the, uh, the, 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 the grope and, and all the other stuff. And I'm, I'm going to do my very best because one of my missions when I do this is to make them ashamed of what they do. Right. And I think that shame, shunning, and that kind of behavior is vital. You and I may have spoken about this or I spoke about it with Michael. Arkansas recently adopted constitutional carry, mm-hmm. which is, I hate that term. It should be discreet. <laughs> yeah. You know, where you're getting permit to carry. Where you don't need permission to carry your weapon either open or discreet. Well, nonetheless, I thought to myself, well, how did that happen? How is that happening? One of the reasons that's happening is because when the state has to justify in the open light, in the court of public opinion, what it does in a very detailed degree, it doesn't make sense. Right. Now, all 50 states for the longest time before Florida in the 1980s adopted it, they uh, they did not allow concealed carry permits, nor did they allow concealed carry in the way that we have in the state of Arizona, which is I need not a permit for neither discrete carry nor open carry. Mm. Well, w- when when you argue this in the light of day, it makes no sense to sustain it. So maybe that 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 tiny little platform, that sliver of freedom that was granted with this alleged constitutional carry in Arkansas, is one of the answers here. We need to question the government on everything that they do at every turn and make them justified in a way where people can see them for who they are. And who they are is people who wish to use a moral means to bring a moral end. And I'm here to tell you historically that that never works out. Yeah. And and well, that kind of goes back to stoicism uh, because uh, part of the philosophy there, if, if I understand it correctly, is that to maintain yourself and to uh, not allow emotions to uh, to fog your decision-making process 
and uh, and how you act. Um, uh, let's see. Hmm. I'm not saying it exactly like I was thinking it. No, I think I think I get where you're coming from, Ben. <laughs> but we can't divorce we can't divorce emotion from decision making, especially when it comes, for instance, to the family. Right. Despite what the state says, no one will move heaven and earth or whatever your your religious touchstone may be more than the person who has a disabled or Down syndrome child in their family. No one will do more for that child than the parents, Right. despite what the state says. Now, the state says, no, 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 we can do a better job because we have economies of scale. We have all of these resources that we can put against it. But in the eight, in the end, the state is indifferent to that outcome. The only thing that the state wants to happen is to plug them into the system so they have yet another cog that justifies their bureaucracy. And in the end, they use immoral means, a.k.a. CPS, Child Protective Services, to put them in the foster homes if they were to take children away from parents who they deem unfit. Yet in foster homes, and I do hate statistics, but I found this interesting. I learned it at Liberty Forum. In foster homes, children stand 18 times the chance of getting harmed than they do in their original parent homes. Wow. Yeah. Um, here's what I, I, I cheated and went over to Wikipedia, and uh, um, here's kind of what I was thinking of as I was trying to put that together. It says uh, that uh, the Stoics presented their philosophy as a way of life, and they thought that the best indication of an individual's philosophy was not what a person said, but how they behaved. And then, the, you know, the, the ultimate result of that was, uh, a, 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 theoretically, an immunity to misfortune. Um, and I realize, you know, none of us are perfect, so none of us are really immune to misfortune. But but the idea that that I'm seeing is essentially how you act and how you uh, how you behave uh, is going to either improve or uh, uh, or harm your life. And that's kind of real. I know it sounds like so basic. You reap what you sow. But that should be the foundation of all uh, clear thought, really. To do good produces good, but to do bad produces bad. How you, you know? <laughs> the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and and you, you bring up such great points, Ben. But here's here's the other kicker too. I think when it comes to stoicism, and stoicism, and maybe this is rationalization on my part, but for the most part, it is the the individualistic and the atomistic way to form a good society. So if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, what we do know is that if we do the right thing by ourselves and the people around us, that is in our self-interest to do so. And that kind of even ties in with with Mises a little bit, with his philosophies of understanding human action. Well, it, it's interesting too. When I look at Stoicism and I study the Bushido and and Japanese realms of philosophy, like Bushido and and the uh, the Code of the Warrior and such, you find that there's stovepipes that developed par- parallel here, where there's a whole lot of Stoicism in what the Japanese do, and the Japanese could say the same thing. They could say that Seneca and the rest of them, who they had no awareness of whatsoever were pretty much paralleling what they had erected as a philosophical construct in their own societies. I, I think that I've said this about truth, you know, when when it it's kind of hard to explain how this is possible. 
But when a human encounters truth, I believe that there's something there that that they recognize maybe on a really deep uh, a subconscious level or I'm not sure exactly what it is, if it's in the realm of, you know, spiritual or whatever. But but there's something about hearing the truth or being confronted with the truth that within the average human, not not necessarily somebody who's, you know, unusual, just the average regular human, there's something in truth that always clicks in a person's mind or or deep in their thoughts. And they can teach themselves to reject that. They can teach themselves to ignore it. But I think in a lot of, like, uh, in, in some religions, you, you even have to the, to the extreme of having, you know, like a good angel and a bad angel that are constantly whispering back and forth in your ears or whatever. But I, but I think a, a way possibly to explain that is that there's something hardwired into our brains that just like when we smell, smell rotting, you know, rotting flesh, immediately you don't have to be told don't eat that. You know it. Don't eat that. And if you see something that is really sickening and grotesque looking, you don't have to be told don't eat that. It's rotting, you know, inside your brain, you know. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you that, Ben, but the psychopaths and sociopaths who tend to be the lion's share of people who wish to rule and dominate over others, their their ability to live a stoic life is distorted. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's possible because it's interesting when you're talking about truth. Mortimer Adler and Clifton Fadiman founded the uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Great Books of the Western World, which I recommend to your audience to to purchase the 54 volume Great Books of the Western World, but not the 60 volume successor that came out in the late 80s, early 90s. And these 54 volumes can be purchased uh, at a garage sale for a hundred dollars. It's a, it's a, it's really, it's a really nice set that I urge everybody, even if you're not homeschooling your children, homeschool yourself with it. Because in the end, and this riffs off something you, you said earlier, perfection is the enemy of the good, but perfection is also the thing that the state and bureaucracies constantly beat us over the head with to say, you know what? If you, if you give us the tools, the means, and tools and means, as far as the state is concerned, is surrender of your ability to opt out or refuse. If you give that, if you give that to us, we will perfect this and we'll, we'll get a utopia on earth. You and I are dystopians. Mm-hmm. You and I realize that we are failed beings. Now, whether you look at that in a, in a religious sense or, or not, when I say failed beings, I mean that we wander through life and we're, we all make mistakes. We all make errors. I tend to learn from mine. Some of them I regret greatly. But, you know, it's one thing that Marcus Aurelius said. And, and Marcus Aurelius' Meditations is a book that I give to all of my children. And, and I give it as a gift to others. One of the things he said is how ridiculous and how strange to be surprised at anything that happens in life. Hmm. Of course. I mean, uh, it's uh, it sounds so banal, but it's so profound. Of course, life is full of surprises. I mean, Nassim Tlaib talked about this in his book, The Black Swan, where he talked about 911, Pearl Harbor, other historical events. And in a more minor fashion, those kind of things that broadside us in our daily lives were, well, how did that happen? Well, mm-hmm. one reason it happened is because you weren't paying attention. Yeah. The other reason it happened is because you exceeded the portfolio of your own span of control and made the assumption that you could control things that essentially you have no control over. Yeah. You know that's that's it's so good to hear that though. Uh everything you just said 
is is kind of doing exactly what in my mind it's kind of doing exactly what I was talking about. I can I can almost feel the truth in the words that you speak. Um, I, I think that's one of the things that you know one of my uh, my great fascinations is with the truth, and I and I believe that if I speak the truth, even when it harms me. Uh, in the long run, I'm doing uh, something positive. Now, that doesn't mean I want to, you know, constantly going around confessing yeah. things that are going to get me arrested. But um, but my philosophy with my children, raising my children, and they're all, you know, grown and on their own now. But my philosophy was with them was never lie to them. Even if lying to them will hurt me or hurt my reputation with them, tell them the truth. And if they're smart enough to ask me a question, that means they're smart enough to hear the truth about that question. Now, I agree with that as long as you don't tell them to always tell the truth to authority <laughs> because that is something that they cannot do. And I, I, it's sort of a – it's a complexification for children especially to make that distinction, to make that bifurcation of, wait, I can be truthful to my friends and parents, but I can't be truthful to the state. You cannot be truthful to the state if you value your liberty and your life. Uh, giving them no information would be the perfect world. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and speaking of – you and I are, are 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 talking about this for 15 minutes about stoicism. It's been a lifetime of investigation for me. One of my intellectual adventures has been stoicism. And, and in my small burg in Arizona, I probably have one of the biggest stoic libraries in my little burg of, of a thousand people. But <laughs> you, uh, we live in a time in which everybody has access horizontally and vertically to so much information that if they said, you know what, I am going to divine what the stoics meant. So they could read Aurelius, they could read Heraclitus, they could read Epictetus, they could read Gaulus, they could read Seneca, they could read Diodotus, they could read all of these guys, and they have access to them right here and now. If they want it, they have it. That wasn't the case in the 19th century, the 18th century, where if you had a genuine intellectual inquiry that you wanted to use to improve your life, your resources were limited. Mm-hmm. Our ability right here, right now, while the net is still alive and well and people are, are still reading books, there is nothing stopping anybody from taking a, a, a deep and well-traveled inquiry into anything they're interested in. And that's amazing to me. It really is. It's, it's, you know, it would be a fantasy if you, if you could go back in time and talk to somebody even a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago and explain to them, um, how easy it would be to collect the writings of, you know, pretty much any topic, the one you mentioned, but pretty much any topic, you can find out almost anything that is known about that topic if you really want to and if you're careful and you think about how to do your searches. Exactly. So, you know, my, I guess my brief to the audience out there is take something that you're really interested in and become an expert. Yeah. Uh, you know, taking this back to the TSA people and the tyranny of government and everything like that, um, one of the – and I mentioned security theater. We both know that everything that they're doing, uh, the the entirety of it and every little aspect of it doesn't make a person not even the slightest bit safer. It doesn't improve the, the safety of the traveler in any way. Um, and so, you know, as you think these things through, you think, well, then why are they doing it? And my knee-jerk reaction in this is 
it's behavioral training. They're teaching us to obey. They're teaching us to be good slaves because, you know, deep down they're afraid that these the thoughts will dawn on us and we will set ourselves free, and that terrifies them. Thank but, you, Ben. I, I, I agree, and I, I call it imperial conditioning. Yeah. And then I get to thinking about all the different government people that I've encountered, and I think uh, not one of them is bright enough to think that process through. So it happens on some level, either either some level of government of people that I've never encountered in my life, or it happens in a, in a market sense. You know the way the way prices fluctuate in a market, they do it without anybody deciding that they're going to fluctuate. It just happens uh, because because uh, somebody you know hits a, a, a gas reserve in North Dakota or something. Um, you know, some some prince in in Saudi Arabia decides not to buy. Uh, a new BMW this week because, you know, the, and that affects the price of BMWs and then the price of rubber changes and all these things happen naturally in the market. And I, and I try to think these things through with government and I think, you know, how is it? Does, does somebody in, in government sit down and say, well, we need these people to be more obedient. So what we need to do is train them to allow us, uh, to pat them down only at the airport. And then eventually we'll do that at airport and train stations. And eventually we'll do that at airport, train stations, and football stadiums. And pretty soon we'll have people on the street, just cops stopping people on the street and uh, and randomly searching them. And I, I agree. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Wolf wrote a book. He's a great author called A Man in Fool. In A Man in Fool, it's all about – it takes place in Atlanta, and it's about political shenanigans such. As a matter of fact – there is a stoic character in it who Tom Wolfe really rips on really well. One thing that really stuck out of me in this doorstop of the book, because the thing must be three inches thick, but it's well worth the read, is at one point the mayor of Atlanta is going to lose his – and this is a, a novel. It's a, it's a work of fiction. At one point, the mayor of Atlanta is going to lose his position. And he's asked, well, what is it, what is it that, that makes you so – you know, uh, fond of, of your position. It's not the money. It's not the power. It's none of that. What it is, is when he enters a room, people acknowledge because of his, his position, his authority. Hmm. Now you find that with cops, you find it with politicians. So we could pay our politicians a billion dollars to leave their position, but most likely they could leave their position, but that billion dollars wouldn't fill the emptiness of not having that authority and and by by extension, their ability to dominate other human beings mm-hmm. because of that position of authority. I, th- I think that's part of the sociopathy that we have with cops today. Yeah. I think that's what causes so many of our difficulties. I I recently did a five part series on cops called the um, cops as serial killers: the growing murder culture of, of police forces, and uh, it was grueling to do that five part series because I covered animals, women, the elderly, the disabled. And, uh, and children. And I did anecdotal evidence from the past year of abuses and, and, and it's just, it's horrific to see what the police get away with and what they do. And part of that is because their humanity is excused because they're in a position to commit immoral acts mm-hmm. for immoral means to achieve moral ends. And you and I both know that even in Common Core curriculum, that equation doesn't muster. Yeah. 
Now, you know, people, not so much within our uh, our realm of exposure, but people uh, say sometimes like, well, you know, we're only giving up this little thing or that little thing, or they're only, you know, doing, uh, who cares if they listen to my phone calls? I don't say anything anyway. And, and you know, it's more important that, that we keep the evil terrorists overseas. And, and the, the, the phrase is always kicked around by these people. They say something like, well, I'd rather it be the fight be over there than over here. So that's why I tolerate all these things because the terrorists can't purchase plane tickets yeah (laughs) yeah i got it well none of these can you know you any level of logic just destroys that whole process of thought that 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 all of that is based on because ultimately nobody can make you safe um other than you yourself uh and and we can and we can only be safe to a certain degree it kind of goes back to what you were talking about you can only influence so many things and anything outside of that realm of influence you can't influence it. It's it, so forget about it. Don't even think about if a plane is going to crash into the building you're in, because you don't have any way to control that, um, and nothing is going to keep you safe from some oddity like that happening. I mean, what, what are the one of the greatest ways for us to arrest the development of that kind of psychosis in our own thinking with our friends and family is never word, use the word should with anything but I in front of it. Oh yeah, I've heard you say that, and I really like yeah. that. The more you think that phrase through, um, the the better it sounds. That is that because is it's really rather right. presumptuous to say we should, because what you're saying is much like I consider voting to be violence. What you're mm-hmm. saying is, I want to authorize the government or some proxy to go into your house every month and tell you what to do and take thirty percent of what you earn. Yeah. Um, and and it's always you want somebody else to do it. You don't want to actually exactly. do that yourself. And that's part of the moral cowardice that informs so much of what government is. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with the with all the NSA, you know, the snooping, the cyber snooping. You say, well, what what harm does it do? You know, they're not using that information against me. But there are so many ways that doing bad brings more bad that that you don't necessarily know all these connections so you don't even know how bad it is for them to to you know snoop on all these phone calls and emails and everything it, it, I, go ahead know, you're right because for instance when we talk about the notion of violence you know one thing i'm fond of saying is that murder begins where self defense ends mm-hmm. and that the 10 commandments when they speak to to death they're speaking to thou shalt not commit murder not killing because I am not a pacifist. I have never been. I think that's a that's a quick road to a, to a personal extinction event to mm-hmm. be that way. But I think that there are times when when violence is absolutely necessary. Chris Cantwell has uh, has written several postings about this, and as a matter of fact, he got excommunicated from the Free State Project in New Hampshire as a result of that. And Larkin Rose embraces the same philosophy, and that philosophy really comes down to you can you can aggress all you want, and I'll be opposed to your initiation of force, but I will not be opposed to defending myself against the force you initiate against me. Um, yeah, my problem with Chris Cantwell is that in his raging desire for more attention, he's willing to lie about what other people believe. Uh, in addition to stay, stating, stating things like that, he's a, he's willing to lie about what other people believe in order to promote himself. But that's that's just my personal attack against him. But um. yeah, and I, I I know nothing of that. And of course, that's going to happen in every movement as a result of perceptions. Right. You know, one thing I find really wacky is that. Libertarians are small to begin with. Voluntarius is a subsection mm-hmm. of 
of libertarians is even smaller. ANCAPs, uh, what I, I refer to myself as an abolitionist primarily, abolitionists are, are an even smaller subsection. The one thing we must avoid at all costs is uh, is eating each other in the process of, of trying to either gain notoriety or, or gain some kind of semblance of fame because it, it it does the end state no good, and that end state is liberation from the state. Often people from the outside, and this is easy for me to say and hard for me to live it, but often people from the outside that are looking at a movement or looking at a, you know, it could be a racket club or anything, um, they don't want to take the time to figure out all the nuances of who, you know, who, what kids on the school uh, yard are on what group and what, you know, they don't want to learn all that stuff. And if it looks complicated, you know, with a lot of relationships and, and negative things going on, they'll just look the other way. And we shouldn't live our lives worried about, you know, oh, we have to make sure that we that we do everything perfect so that we can convince people to be like us. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that if we look like a bunch of bickering little children, then it's it will have a tendency to, to scar our overall um, image. I agree. And you know what? There's There's no reason to broadcast dirty language that doesn't do the message any good. And there's also a Victorian gentleman's code that I've always abided by, which is that you talk smack to a man's face and speak benignly of him behind his back. Mm -hmm. And that way you don't participate in gossip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> taking this back to the NSA, uh, I have a, a uh, real quick story that you might find interesting. And I, I and I would really enjoy hearing your uh your take on it. Uh, I don't think I've told this story on my podcast before, although I, I may have because I've done so many podcasts. Um, my brother is uh, uh, is in the same in industry that I used to be in. He's in aircraft engine uh, manufacturing, and um, he attained a much higher level than I did in, in the corporate structure in the particular, uh, well, uh, I used to work for General Electric Aircraft Engines, and he also uh, has retired, but he used to work for General Electric Aircraft Engines. Um, and in his position, he did a lot of world travel. He had a lot of people that worked for him. Uh, he was in a management position. And, um, in, and when he retired, he continued exactly the same work, but he continued it as a, a private uh, uh, privately employed uh, contractor, so as a consultant. So his his he kept working, doing the exact same thing when he retired. He was just working for himself, contracting back to General Electric and other companies. Okay, so that was a long setup. So in order to do this, he had to set up a home office. So he also had to set up a a uh, a business. He had to have a DBA, a doing business as name, and do all the all the steps you have to go through to legally protect your business when you set something like this up. So he did this. He went through, got a name, got his business name, got a business bank account, got a business uh, uh, phone uh, package through Time Warner Cable, local to where he lives, so that he had internet and phone connection uh, through the business and, and in the business's name. And then he could pay himself, you know, all this is the legal stuff of how you have to do this when you set up uh, a contracting business like that. Well, 
about three months after he got the business rolling and was self-employed doing this, uh, he was on his wife's cell phone talking to my sister about uh, the recent death of my father and, you know, details that had to be, this was like a year and a half ago, details that had to be worked out about the, the uh, concerning the estate and everything. And he was, uh, he literally had parked in front of a local mall while his wife went into the mall to shop and he sat out in the parking lot and talked to my sister on her cell phone, on his wife's cell phone. And the conversation lasted about an hour while his wife was shopping. And she came out and he hung up with my sister and handed her the phone back and they drove home. This is becoming a really long story. He got home, walked into his office, into his uh, uh, the room of his house that he had de- designated as his office, and uh, looks over and he, and he I think he picked up the phone because it didn't it didn't have like a flashing light or whatever. I think when you pick up the phone, it, it uh, bleeps at you to tell you you have a message. If I recall the way he's got it set up, so he walks over to his business phone. He picks up the phone and it let him know that he had a message. So he did whatever you have to do to get the thing to to tell you the message, and his his uh, his phone, which is part of a internet bundled ba- package through Time Warner Cable, had the entire phone call that he made to my sister on his wife's cell phone recorded. The cell phone is through um, T-Mobile in his wife's name. And, uh, and not, not in her, um, his wife is, uh, from, from Thailand and it's in her maiden name. So it's not even in his last name. And yet his conversation, the entire hour long conversation with my sister on his wife's cell phone was recorded on his business, uh, 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 phone. How curious. And, uh, yeah, um, now that means to me that someone I'm uh, assuming in essay could be any number of, uh, you know, alphabets, uh, alphabet soup, uh, organizations, but somebody, um, connected the fact that this, uh, T-Mobile account in this Asian name, is somehow connected to this uh, Time Warner account in my brother's name, in his business name, not just his name, but in his business name. And somebody in their, uh, you know, the typical government ineptness, somebody actually crossed, I don't think they physically crossed wires, but somebody made a mistake that connected those two together somehow. Well, I'll bet the billing address was identical, though. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, that's true. Yeah. And, and, and so what that would be part of from, from their perspective and intelligence perspective is you put together what's called association matrices, which is where I have an X and Y axis and do Ben and Bill broadcast and talk to each other. Whenever you and I have touch points in which we physically speak to each other, you record that event. Ben talks to Joe Smith. Joe Smith talks to somebody else and you start to put together an association matrix and diagram of what those communication networks look like. And that's how you can template what a cell structure looks like. And that's what that's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Oftentimes, people there's a there's a, a thing in in uh, in the Bible where there's mentioned that a prophet is never uh, recognized in his own town. Uh, it's kind of giving the idea that you know it doesn't matter what you can accomplish the you, the people right around you are going to think oh that's just Bill you know they're not going it, to it's very difficult to be accepted among the people that are closest to you. Another another way of putting it is the diaper syndrome. You can't have some the the saying is that you can't have respect for somebody whose diaper you've changed. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning your child will always be your child. Your your little sister will always be your little sister. It doesn't matter if she becomes the biggest Hollywood star in the world or, you know, president of the United States or whatever. She's always just your sister. And I think that syndrome hits people a certain extent when we think of things like the NSA and government goons snooping on us. We think, well, I'm not important. They're not going to look at me or they're not going to do anything. You know, I'm, I'm never going to get their attention. Or, you know, well, that's just Bill. They're not going to go after Bill. Bill's harmless. Or, you know, there's Davi over there. They're not going to do anything to Davi. But all of these things have a level of evil in them, in this snooping and in their, you know, data collection. And all of these things have a stream of evil. And that stream of evil is going to produce evil at some point. So I, I guess in saying that, uh, I shouldn't be shocked that my brother uh, is being watched with that kind of scrutiny. I should be shocked if he wasn't. Well, the the government is scrutinizing everybody and all the hum, all the electronic human transactions, but they pay special attention to anybody who is not an American passport holder or a resident alien or whatever the case may be. And they they put people into these boxes and then they give them extra attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at some point, what kind of a, a you know I was talking about Davi being a greater threat uh, with the philosophy that he walked around with than with any imaginary Bitcoin that he might be carrying with him. Um, what uh, at what point do you think it will begin to dawn on these people the level of uh, uh, of threat that we actually present to them? I don't think that it will. I, I think that that government is is generally a. Uh, a very large creature, a very large bull in the China shop that has no indication whatsoever of what the long-term and intermediate second and third, third order effects are of what it does. It always seems to look at the short term. Unfortunately, in human affairs, that short term tends to make it so that once something is stuck in place, for instance, laws in America, they last forever and don't go away. I mean, I'm I'm hard-pressed to look at the history of America in the 20th and 21st century and find one department or or sub-department that's gone away. You know, we have helium subsidies for World War I dirigibles in Texas. <laughs> we have mohair subsidies, you know, throughout the uh, the Midwest for Korean War-era uniforms. Uh, we, You know, anybody can we, – we have a raisin council that seizes and confiscates 40% of a raisin yield from a given crop from a 1930s law that simply confiscates that from the producer with no compensation whatsoever. And that's still on the books. It's before the Supremes right now for deliberation. And in the rare case where something like that is dropped, it's always replaced, you know, usually in an offhanded way or, or somewhere, somewhere around the edges where nobody notices. It's replaced with something as bad or worse or it just shifts slightly. 
you know, it's like uh, prohibition. Um, yeah, so they so they dropped prohibition, but um, but the engine of enforcement didn't go away when they dropped uh, prohibition. You're right. It just shifted. And, and coincidentally, the Volstead Amendment for 1919 and 1933 is in force. In 1933, we have Nevada, curiously enough, to be the first state in the nation to make narcotics illegal, you know, take serious drugs and, and say, nope, these are going to be illegal. Because mm. what they were doing is for the longest time, narcotics were not regulated in the fashion that, that uh, the U.S. is accustomed to today. And at the end of Prohibition, just like you just said, the Treasury agents, the, the enforcement departments were saying, well, well, we can't just shrink. we got to find another – got to wage a war on something. So they decided to wage a war on illegal vegetation, and, and the rest is history. Which, again, like you said earlier, all you have to do is think about that a little bit. How can you justify outlawing a plant? How can you justify outlawing a human's incipient ability to alter their own consciousness as they wish? Whatever harm may come of that, how can you justify what's done? Because what I find so, I mean, almost cruel about government is that they do just the opposite of do no harm. They wage a war on drugs, and I, I, I was going through the news this morning, and I saw something, and again, please, I'm, I'm not a big fan of statistics, but it really stood out at me, where they said that 1,000 people are killed a day by doctors doing the wrong thing in hospitals across the nation. Wow. And, of course, that would add up to, let's say, 360,000 a year, which is, let's see, that would be seven times the number of highway deaths per year. So if that's the case, why aren't the uh, the police and, and hospitals arresting doctors and such? Well, they're not there because that's not a war that would make sense to the government because the AMA and Big Pharma and such are wholly owned subsidiaries of not only government largesse, but government domination and control. I mean, that's – Obamacare is two things. Number one, I, I think it's silly for, for the grand old Politburo, for instance, to say, well – we need to get rid of Obamacare, but we're not going to get rid of it. They're going to modify it. <laughs> and these are the same people who say that Medicare for the elderly over the age of 65 or those people under the age of 65 who are eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, what they're basically saying is that we want the government involved in health care. And the, and the biggest onus for the government being involved in health care is twofold. Number one, you notice that the primary enforcement mechanism for health care is the IRS. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the, the rest is self-evident. But the other thing is total control and domination can be achieved by having access to the most intimate records of your physical and mental health. And they will use that in the future yeah. for evil. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just running through the numbers in my mind as you were talking there. Uh, 9-11-2001, the events of that day were used as an excuse for so much. Um, but if you think about it, you think about all the people that actually died that day, if all of our numbers are correct, uh, 10 times that many die on the, on government highways every year. Of course, the roads are always the argument of, of last resort that people use. Well, what about the roads? Well, 10 times as many people die on the government highways every year as died on, on the events of 9-11. You're and, right. And my answer, my answer to who will build the roads is always people will build the roads. Yeah. Of exactly. course. I mean, that's, it's pretty silly to think otherwise. And, and, and you've also seen this number bandied about of 5,000 Americans have been killed by cops since 911. Hmm, yeah. Have you seen that number? That number is patently false. 
that number is closer to fourteen to 17,000 by my own calculations. Wow. Because the federal government does not maintain a database of the 20 – let's see, it's, it's either 19,000 departments or 86,000 departments. Mark Stevens and I aren't sure how many police departments there are in the United States. It's between mm-hmm. 19,000 and 86,000 with a million badged statist costume thugs in action every day, you know, on their shifts. Mm-hmm. There's no federal database maintained of police murder or killing of civilians, whether they're perpetrators or not, whatever the perpetrators of a crime or not. Mm-hmm. This one guy did a study, and this is in my, uh, my, my police series that I just did. This one guy did a study where he discovered that he pegs the number at 1200 a year. Now I would say because of non-reporting, under-reporting and misreporting, let's put 20% on that. Mm-hmm. So let's say instead of 1200 a year, it's 1500 a year. Well, 1500 times 13, your audience can do the math. That's far greater than 5,000. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a lot of situations too where, and, and more and more of these are coming to light. Um, if, if nothing is being recorded and then someone is killed by a cop and then, you know, the report comes out, well, uh, he, he moved in an offensive manner or the cop was just defending himself because he feared for his life. These are the things they always say. Uh, and so then the investigation takes place. The cop gets two weeks paid, 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 paid vacation. And, uh, uh, and, and always, almost always, uh, it comes back. Sure enough, the cop was afraid for his life. That's so it's a justified shooting and it's all dropped. And, and, and that should tell everybody everything they need to know about government in one very concise statement, what you just said. Yeah, because there's just no uh, there's there's n- nobody answers for that, um, and so how many times more and more we're getting recordings of one kind of another that are showing us that 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 is a consistent lie. The cop had absolutely no reason to kill the person; he killed him anyway. And the police force did investigate and found out and, and justified his actions through their investigation, even though we know that the guy, like in one case, uh, very famously, I think it was uh, last year in Arkansas, uh, the guy was handcuffed in the back seat of a police car, had already been searched once, and was handcuffed and somehow shot himself in the head with a, with a gun. Uh, His name was Jesus Huerta. Yeah. He shot himself with a gun that happened to be the same caliber as the weapons that were carried by the cops at the time, and he was handcuffed in the back during their frisks. Apparently, they say they failed to see that. And by the way, the cameras of the interior of the car malfunctioned during that sequence. What, what, a, what, a, what are the chances of that? <laughs> you know, that's like the old racist joke where the where – the, um, you know, the local sheriff is standing there beside the riverbank and they pull the victim uh, out of the water, and he's wrapped from head to toe with chains, and he, the victim is a black man, and he uses a derogatory comment and says, you know, typical that he would steal more chain than he could swim across the river with. I mean, that's the same Indeed. kind of, you know, wh- why would why does the mind even accept such a ridiculous scenario? Of course the cops executed that man. And then they can lie so bold-faced, the, the, the big lie, you know, from, from Mein Kampf, the big lie. You say something so utterly ridiculous and stand by it 100%, and people will nod their big, dumb, empty heads. Indeed. You know, with, with police unions, qualified immunity, 
and the uh, the hero worship that takes place in the major government media complex as far as cops are concerned. It, it's it's disgusting to me because what they're doing is is they are laying laurels on the worst of our, that our society can create, which is a cop. It reminds me very much, actually, of uh, organized crime. Well, of course, that's obvious, but um, but in that, I mean that it, it's there's a scene in the movie um, uh, Goodfellas that when I when I watched that scene the very first time, it reminded me exactly of some of the real-life criminals that I have encountered when I was young. I hung around with some pretty rough people at times. <laughs> and uh, in the scene in, in Goodfellas, uh, the, the, the voiceover guy who's narrating it, uh, which is one of the stars of the, of the movie, he says um, that killing got to be – you could get whacked for anything. Um, the only people that couldn't get whacked were made guys, were, were, you know, were guys that were in the club, that were actually in the mafia. But anybody else could be killed for anything or not killed. I mean, they could plan and, and, and then they laid the scenario out in the movie where, uh, this guy is on the list, he's about to be killed, and then he tells a funny story or whatever, and it's a, it's a fun evening with the guys, and the guy that was gonna kill him changes his mind, and it doesn't happen, it's just like that. And then sometime later, the guy changes his mind again and kills him. And, uh, and it's on an individual level, um, where. But that's because he asked him to get a shine box. Yeah. (laughs) 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 But it, but it's, you know, it's, it's the, the individual decision making. There, there's no repercussion for, for the bad guy killing another bad guy as long as he's not a made man. You know, and that's kind of how it is with police and, and government in general. It's like all of us out here, the civilian population, there's no repercussion for killing us. Uh, but nobody better touch one of them because they're made. You know, they're well, part we saw of that with Dorner. Yeah. What was interesting about Dorner to me, though, is that essentially this one guy who I guess you can classify him as leaderless resistance in his behavior model. He put that uh, that entire state in a in a uh, a state of abject panic to include the uniform guys who were you know protecting their supervisors and at their homes 24/7 and opening fire on old ladies delivering newspapers and men in trucks who didn't even match skin description getting blasted by the way all those people got excused yeah yeah you know the ones who fired the 107 rounds into that the two ladies and- truck and if anybody's not newspapers. if anybody's not sure who we're talking about, this happened in the Los Angeles area where uh, one of their own, a cop, um, you know, became rogue or whatever, however they want to tell the story, and uh, and and was going to kill cops. So they decided to kill anybody that even vaguely <laughs> that vaguely uh, looked like or appeared like th- that guy. And in one case, there were two. If I recall, it was two small. Asian women in a pickup truck that didn't match the description of his truck that they opened fire on and shot them up. Over a hundred rounds were expended. Yeah. And these were two ladies that were out in the morning delivering newspapers. That's what they were out doing. Now, fortunately, because of the, the, uh, the gross mismanagement of, of marksmanship training and, and despite their fixation with military style weapons, Cops are notoriously bad shots, universally, <laughs> notoriously bad shots. And in the future unpleasantness that may come in America with uh, with 
American Rev War or Civil War or, or whatever happens, which I don't, which I hope does not happen, when it comes, they're going to be in for a big surprise. Sadly, now maybe you can comment on this coming from a military background. Uh, I, I'm kind of concerned that, okay, let me put it this way. I've complained about cops being the worst gun handlers. I've complained about that for a long time. You watch their manners. You watch the fact that they'll sweep with their gun, totally innocent people for no reason. They, they might just be, I mean, under any circumstances, they have no problem sweeping a, a crowd with their gun. Um, they'll have their finger on the trigger at times when they should not have their finger on the trigger. You see them regularly making simple mistakes that you don't make in gun handling. And I've, and I've said for the longest time that for regular gun handlers, cops tend to be the worst. And then when they have a shooting incident, they have to empty their, their gun every single time. It's, it's like, I don't know if they're trained to do that, but my training, uh, I was always trained that you don't fire any larger groups than two shots. You fire sh your first shot, your second shot, and then you pause and you evaluate the situation. If you can't hit them in one or two shots, the odds are something's wrong here in this in this scenario. And so so maybe you can comment a little on military training uh, because my my concern is that so many cops are now um, ex-military are coming back to the U.S. from combat zones and becoming cops. Is this tragic because now all of a sudden cops are going to become better gun handlers? Well, indeed it's tragic, but I don't think it's because cops are going to become better gun handlers. There's an obesity epidemic among cops, which I applaud, which is which is also global. I think that there, there's a lot of reasons for that. The cops themselves say, well, it's stress. It's because when you're on patrol, you can't always eat well and the rest of it. To me, it's simply indiscipline. They have indiscipline of mind and they have indiscipline of body. And that that speaks just the opposite of what happens in the military. Unfortunately, though, in the last 10 years, I've seen that physical fitness in the military has been less emphasized than it was otherwise. If the question you're asking me is, is the current influx of prior military folks into the military, into the cop, the, the cop realm, going to make them more effective at civilian suppression, I would suggest to you that if we looked at it, and I can't I can't stipulate this because this is something we have to examine, Ben, but I think folks coming out of the military and joining the police ranks has been happening for decades. If the question here is because there are so many combat veterans returning from a combat area and going into the police ranks, does that make them more lethal from a weapons perspective? It does not. Does it make them more lethal from a perspective of behaving like occupiers? Yes, it does. There's kind of good news in that then, because because I was you know very concerned if if cops get better, they're they're gonna they're gonna be harder to deal with. I don't know I, I don't know how to say this in a politically correct manner. No, I know what you're saying, and I don't think the, I don't think the rank and file is they're all about window dressing when it comes to physical fitness, when it comes to gun handling, and all mm -hmm. of that. Plus. How effective would you need to be as a gunman if you know when you step out of the office that day and go out and you just so happen to kill somebody, you have this entire apparatus behind you and in front of you and around you that will do everything in its power to make sure that you get away with that murder? Yeah. I don't think you're going to pay as much attention to being a, uh, a really good shot. So cops are not 
in your uh, assessment, cops are not going to get a lot better and, and become a, a harder thing to deal with. Well, no, they're not. I mean, they, they, they can get the MRAPs. They can get all the military. You know, it's, and you've seen this in the, in, the, uh, in the gun community. There's a lot of tactical guys out there. There's a lot of mall ninjas out there. There's a lot of guys who will dress up in $3,000 worth of clothing and weapons and think that because they've spent a sufficient amount of money mm-hmm. that it makes them that much more lethal. That is not necessarily the case. The man who has a, um, a $300 Lee Enfield who religiously takes that Enfield out to the range, he's been working with that thing for decades, and he knows it like the back of his hand, and he can quite literally stress fire index that, that weapon where at 100 meters he's always hitting 4 MOA versus the guy who picks out the $12,000 sniper rifle, never takes it out. It's a gun safe queen. Who's going to be more lethal? Yeah. Who's going to be your biggest threat? As a matter of fact, in Afghanistan, you have some of the the poorest people per poorest people per capita on the nation, but they have taken a hyper military power and they have driven them not only to a strategic stalemate but an ultimate defeat. If America is honest with what it's done over there, here's something I want to ask you about. This is a thought that's just kind of bouncing around in my head a little bit, uh, and you're certainly a lot more knowledgeable in this area than I am. Um, you know, I look at cities and uh, and my initial gut reaction is to get away from them. I don't like cities. I don't like being in cities. I don't like being close to cities. I like being out where I, in the in the open where I can see around me and not have people crowded up in every direction. And I don't like buildings everywhere. But I look at the at, at cities and I think you know, in a very real sense, they're like the mountains from a from a rifleman point of view. There's so many angles, so many places that you could get and, and so many ways to cover streets, uh, that it seems to me like in a resistance situation, big cities would be almost as, uh, uh, as, as hard to control from a military point of view. You're walking around in a uniform, in a, in a car with, with decorations on it to show, you know, what side you're on. It seems to me like a big city would be the perfect place to uh, uh, to be an opponent to that kind of thing. There's two frictions involved in that. Number one, you're correct from a Michael Collins perspective. Or if you take the time and you look at the um, the stuff that happened in Grozny, what we co- what what's referred to in the military as Grozny One and Grozny Two, when in Chechnya, I think it was ninety four or ninety five, the first time that the Russians went in there. They got their butts handed to them in urban warfare by the uh, Chechnyans. In Grozny too, they did not go into the city itself but leveled it from afar because yeah. it was so difficult to handle. The reason I say that there's two opposing frictions here is because cities and urban areas are the incubators of collectivist thought, sentiment, and action. If it weren't for cities – I doubt if socialism and communism would have taken the hold that it does. And it holds academics in thrall. It holds people because city folk, and you've heard me say this before, Ben, city folk pride themselves on their lack of self-sufficiency. Yeah, they do. If you pride yourself on that lack of self-sufficiency, obviously through proxy, the voting process, government, whatever the case may be, you're going to get your pound of flesh or, or whatever it is you need to sustain yourself by putting a gun to your neighbor's head in your community and forcing from them the wealth, resources, and time to subsidize you. Hmm. And that, that sentiment 
is everywhere in the big cities. You know, New York City to me is almost a, it's like, it's like a, a, a Moscow like city in the, in the sentiment that it has there. The things that they get away with and they do there just astonishes me and the, and the populace just seems to go along with it. So I guess those are the two frictions that, that I would see in that because I think that if, if you had an urban guerrilla who was fighting the urban fight and there's a lot of historical anecdotes and case studies out there, for instance, Grozny, if you look at occupied Europe under the National Socialist during World War II and you look at post-World War II, you look at Eastern Europe in what happened there and you look at the 1956 rising and the 1968 rising in Hungary and Czechoslovakia respectively, unless I got those backwards. You look at those risings, you do find where those guerrillas who fight win the first 72 hours, but after 72 hours, they usually lose the fight. Much like Mordecai and Neliewicz in the, in the Warsaw ghetto who fought against the National Socialist and eventually adopting, maybe the Russians adopted the playbook from the Germans, the Germans simply stood off and leveled the ghetto. Mm. They cheat. The government cheats. They, they can't. They can't fight. They can't fight clean. If you're fighting one way and you're beating them, they'll cheat. Well, here's the, here's the good news though is that because of what's happened to the hyper military power of the U.S. in Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen, fortunately it has, hasn't happened in Syria yet. What's happening in a dozen countries in the Horn of Africa is the U.S. government has all this money. They have all this manpower from mud to space. They have all these surveillance assets. They have the greatest weapons. They have the best technology. They have, you know, air power, naval power, you name it, you name it. But they have yet to defeat, in the case of Afghanistan, for instance, at the atomistic level, the resistance. Right. The resistance is alive and well. All 100 plus organizations in Afghanistan, they're all alive and well and they keep on fighting and kicking. The Israelis, for instance, so we could do a, sh a whole show on Israel. I, I, I don't hold them as a state in the highest esteem, but then again, I don't hold any states in high esteem. They have waged an almost genocidal conflict against Palestinians, and Palestinians, love them or hate them, have a resiliency and adaptation against a quite formidable foe that has kept them alive now for decades. Mm -hmm. I've said this about Afghanistan. I, I mentioned my brother earlier. My brother is a hardcore right wing, fully, you know, neocon into the whole thing. And, uh, he's not listening to your podcast, Ben. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, he, uh, he and I have argued, uh, specifically in the early days of the entrance into Afghanistan. And my argument to him was, you, you can't beat the Afghani people. There's only one way, and the U.S. doesn't have the the whatever it takes inside to do it. There's only one way to win in Afghanistan, and that would be to kill every single person. And uh, and and America just doesn't have the what it takes to see that happen. But if you leave one five year old boy alive to stand on the roof of a mud hut and hold his fist in the air, you have not defeated those people. And and it doesn't matter if you kill everybody else in the whole country. If you leave that one little five-year-old kid standing on the on the roof of a mud hut, you've lost because you're he, right. He's just that, he's going to keep it going. 
that that that's an extreme illustration. But I think the only thing that keeps because how many times have you heard the usual suspects on the right say, well, we need to nuke them and turn their country into glass. Now, would those people have that same kind of nonchalance about mass murder if they were handed a pistol and told, "Here, here's a five, ten-year-old boys, I right. need you to shoot them in the head? Right. Of, of course they wouldn't do that. But in a nonchalant fashion, they'll talk about murdering tens or hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children with a nuclear bomb. And, you know, that's that's sort of like it, – it, it's almost frightening the casualness – with which they'll make a statement like that. And, and to me, that tells me a lot about somebody when I hear that. There's a notion to, in, in a, it, that, that you'll find on the net if you visit some of the forums with veterans and such, where it's pretty hard that if you keep maiming and killing women and children, it's pretty hard to keep the resistance tide from rising of the aggressed against and aggrieved males who wish to remedy this besmirchment mm-hmm. on their honor and their families. Yeah. Um, let's see. We need to try to, as Michael Dean likes to say, uh, bring this to redemption in the third act and and <laughs> bring in some good news into this so we can wrap oh, it the, up. I, I, but I've got good news for you, Ben, and that's this. Stoicism, for instance. Ah. If people investigate that and pay enough attention to it and pay enough attention to a lot of the edicts, and it isn't simply span of control, but for the sake of brevity and, and the time available in your show, let's just examine that one aspect, which is span of control. The span of control that we all have as individuals is what Michael Collins said in his famous speech about refusal. He said, ultimately, and I'm paraphrasing, ultimately they can put us in chains, they can put us in jail, they can take our bodies, they can even send us to the SOM, S-O-M-M-E, he was referring to World War One at the time. But what they can't take away from us is our refusal. And to me, the biggest indicator of whether you are free or not is if you can opt out of that thing which insults you the most or which deprives you of your freedom and liberty. Mm. If you can opt out, you are free. But if you can't, you aren't. But you can refuse. And again, what that refusal speaks to is what you and I talked to at the top of the hour, which was questioning authority is all well and good and sexy, but questioning obedience is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll pull a Michael Dean on this also, and I think I'm going to name this question obedience. I think I'll name this, <laughs> this, uh, this podcast that because that's Excellent. really, you know, it, it, that really has to be a centerpiece in the mind. Um, well, it's from the university of the intuitively obvious, Ben. <laughs> and we all salute the captain here. Um, <laughs> That being Captain Obvious, obviously. <laughs> um, well, Bill, I uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me again, and you know, giving me another hour and a half or whatever of your time. And I know you know my listeners enjoy hearing you because they tell me that. So uh, good, thank you very much for coming back on. Well, if they'd come to zerogov.com and go to Amazon and purchase my book, which is called Zero Gov: Unicorns, Limited Government, and Other Mythological Creatures, I'd be obliged. And even if they've read it or even if they have a copy, um, to buy a physical copy and either give it to somebody or, uh, you know, we have a wonderful thing that we do uh, in camping. We, we go from campground to campground, and each campground has a, uh, 
uh, a laundry room and people go in there and they leave books and they pick up books and it's just sort of a open library a, f- a free and and you know a, a very anarchical uh, society these these RVers are and they'll, so they'll just leave expensive books in uh, the uh, uh, the laundry rooms and uh, and somebody will take it away and then somebody else will put another kind of book and they'll do the same thing with magazines so if you've got a way like that to buy a copy of Bill's book and well actually it's only available on electrons so that wouldn't be uh oh you don't have a physical that wouldn't be possible it would not but Larkin Rose publishes books and I can't flog his stuff enough if it's- you leave you know uh the most dangerous superstition in the laundry room I think you've done a service for mankind yeah yeah um, Bill, again, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. <laughs>